0: these moments made me laugh cry and cheer today i'm talking about my favorite movie moments from 2022 this is scott's an indulgent movie podcast Hello, movie friends. Welcome to Scott's self indulgent Movie Podcast. I am Scott, and today I am talking about some of my favorite movie scenes from 2022. Now, I will note right off the bat that I am not including action scenes, since I always dedicate an entire list to those. So if you're like, hey, this XYZ scene didn't make it, uh, or wondering what the... the protocol is or for how things got chosen, that is how. And uh, another thing is that these are always uh, representative of just my personal opinions and also the movies I've actually seen this year. So there are a handful of big name movies that I haven't gotten a chance to see yet. So if you're wondering why this wasn't included or why a particular standout moment didn't make it, that is why. And yeah, so without further ado, I'm going to list off or talk about some of my favorite scenes from the year. And no particular order because I don't know, I don't feel like doing that (laughs) i always feel like picking an order kind of not cheapens but just makes it like i don't know it always seems like an an over re-emphasis of value when it doesn't really need to be there these are just the ones that i like so without further ado let's get started first up we have natu natu from rrr Indian cinema's biggest international breakthrough in years has plenty of melodramatic fun to offer, be it a charming friendship montage, our heroes single-handedly taking on armies and tigers, or soulful ballads in the midst of impossible suffering. But nothing emanates pure fun and joy like the dance team-up of Raju and Beam at a stuffy British social affair. In his efforts to find a kidnapped girl from his village, Beam joins his new friend and possible romantic interest, Jenny, to visit the governor's compound. However, Beam is notably out of place and being bullied for not knowing all of the latest dances. Hoping to help his friend, Raju takes control of the orchestra and kicks off a dance he knows the pompous English dick doesn't know. Not to. And away we go for four minutes of energetic fun and dancing as Raju and Beam went over the English women with pure charisma, put together some incredible dance moves in sync with one another, the suspender bit, my god, and then go toe-to-toe in a Natu dance-off against their English rival and then each other. The song slaps, the choreography is excellent, you can see the shoulder dip from the entire cast on time. And the camera makes every look and feel like a musical superhero, while conveying shifts like an upcoming contest between Beam and Raju, and Raju realizing how much it would mean to Beam to throw it, seeing Beam tiring out, and his ultimate decision to take a dive. It's everything awesome about this movie in a single segment, and easily my most-watched four minutes of a movie all year. Next up, we have In Another Life from Everything, Everywhere, All at Once. It is painfully difficult to write a sincere romantic line that hits just right. Slipping one into any, everything, everywhere, all at once, a wild combination of science fiction, off-the-wall comedy, kung fu action, and pure absurdity sounds impossible. And yet, that's exactly what the Daniels, writer-directors Daniel Kwan and Daniel Schneert, did with this achingly beautiful ode to the work of Wong Kar Wai. At this point in the movie, Michelle Yeoh's Evelyn Wong is content to embrace the abyss and escape into another life, including one that seemingly resembles Yeoh's own, with her as a big-name actress who left Kehoe Kwan's Waymond Wong behind. But amidst a series of low points, Waymond, in every version of Evelyn's life, lets this ethos break through. He rectifies the problem with Jamie Lee Curtis's IRS agent in one timeline. He stands to defend Evelyn in the main timeline and lays out his driving belief and reason for optimism, for optimism and hope in Evelyn's movie star timeline. When I choose to see the good side of things, I'm not being naive. It is strategic and necessary. It's how I've learned to survive through everything. I know you see yourself as a fighter. Well, I see myself as one too. This is how I fight. At this point, the Wong Kar inspired blurs fuse with a series of memories from Evelyn's past as if we see how much joy Waymond has consciously injected into his and Evelyn's life together, before businessman Waymond delivers this line. So even though you have broken my heart yet again, I wanted to say in another life I would have really liked just doing t- laundry and taxes with you. In a single line, Wayman conveys regret, refutes Evelyn's belief that her life is wasted, flies in the face of the villain's nihilistic impulses, and in essence turns the tide by revealing what Evelyn has and always had by her side, a kind man whose greatest joy is sharing his life with hers. Next up, we have a rough night from Dog. Dog is about as no frills as a movie about a dog and a man both dealing with PTSD, learning to bond, can be. We have the awkward, nothing-going-right phase, the really bad screw-up, and we've just had a breakthrough with Channing Tatum's Jackson Briggs comforting the skittish dog Lulu after his car breaks down, and they're forced to spend the night in a nearby barn. In most other movies, this would be the kickoff for smooth sailing and a gentler set of adventures, which is when Dog drops the emotional hammer. As the duo spend the night at a motel, Jackson suffers a flashback that triggers a violent seizure. As he thrashes on the ground, in a desperate need of help and comfort, Lulu comes down from the bed and gently lays on Jackson. And while the symptoms are still there, the audience sees Jackson's body relax as Lulu keeps him company, and Jackson slowly pets his furry companion. It's the kind of moment a movie like this builds to, something you know is coming, but for any dog lover and dog parent, it's too true and too sweet to deny. That unconditional love and empathy from a pet is heart-melting and tear-inducing in the best possible way. Next up, we have Why Should I Be Ashamed from The Lost City. The Lost City is one of those movies that knows exactly what it is, makes fun of itself, but also embraces the silliness as part of the fun. And who better to deliver that message than an actor best known for taking his clothes off on screen? For much of the film, we've gotten hints that Channing Tatum's Alan Caprician isn't the brightest bulb, but he's also a complete sweetheart, and clearly has a ton of affection for Sandra Bullock's Loretta Sage, her adventure romance novels, and that one that they're basically a part of now, and her audience. But So when Loretta lashes out at Alan in a bad moment, and calls everything she ever wrote and Alan himself worthless, Alan calmly argues for the value in her art. In a soft monologue, Alan explains how ashamed he initially was to be Loretta's beefcake cover model. That he was afraid that his friends would make fun of him, and that there wasn't value to cheesy romance novels. But his mind was changed when he interacted with Loretta's fans, and saw how much joy something as simple and silly as a romance novel gave them. If they're not ashamed, why should I be? Alan muses. It's a nice beat that begins to finally wear down Loretta's cynical edges that were built up by grief, and allows Tatum a nice meta-narrative on his own career, and lets the movie argue for its own silly thrills. Next up, we have Margaret's story from Resurrection. Resurrection is a very uneven movie that has an ace up its sleeve, Rebecca Hall as Margaret. When we first meet Margaret, she seems almost overly put together. She's in charge of her world, a respected businesswoman and a fiercely protective single mother, which makes her understandably erratic behavior when her former beau, played by Tim Roth, arrives and begins to push the same psychological buttons he used to push. But the mystery of what he did to Margaret remains intact until now. When Margaret is just distraught, drunk, and vulnerable enough to take up a young underling's offer to listen, she puts every single card on the table, in an unbroken take and monologue. And what a monologue it is. In one of the best acting moments all year, Hall quietly begins her story before bitterly laying out all of the abuses she endured at Roth's hand, how he weaseled his way into her life, and slowly but surely took control of her and how he basically murdered their baby and continued to torment her with the memory of him. Hall's performance plays like an orchestra's crescendo, complete with an awkward tune-up as she starts, some acerbic jokes before everything she's been trying to bottle up comes pouring out with tears, a waver in her voice, and even trailing off. Sometimes all you need is a story and the right person to tell it to level your audience. Next up, the final shot from Watcher. Megan Monroe's Julia has spent the majority of Watcher's runtime begging someone to believe her. That the man across the street is staring at her, that he's following her, that he's threatening her, and most recently that he is responsible for her nice neighbor's disappearance. But the police and even her initially understanding husband have all hung her out to dry, and now she's in a serial killer's clutches. After the killer confesses what he did, Julia screams for her husband's help, before the killer cuts her throat metaphorically and literally trying to silence her forever. Just as her husband is finally putting the pieces together and the killer pursues him, gunshots ring out and the killer falls dead to reveal Julia is still alive, and took the killer down herself with his own gun. As she stumbles into the hallway, the camera lingers on Julia, who is carrying a pistol and covered in blood as she stares down the man who is supposed to love and trust her more than anyone. The message to said husband and the audience is clear. Do you believe me now? Will this help? From Thirteen Lives. Ron Howard's retelling of the inspiring true story of the rescue mission in Tom Long Cave does its very best to let the incredible human effort to save the boys and their coach speak for itself. No added drama, just a giant group of people doing everything they can to save the titular 13 lives. While this may make some moments underwhelming, it means some quiet moments of bravery and sacrifice hit like a freight train. Case in point, a discussion with nearby local farmers. So the government in this moment has a conundrum. The rain that has trapped the team is dumping water into a cave and making an already difficult rescue mission nigh impossible. To mitigate the issue, the government wants to divert water from the mountains into the nearby crops, a move that will devastate the crops and the farmers' livelihood. Not looking to do this without permission, a government representative explains the plan to the farmers and what its impact will be. After a brief conference, a leader asks only one question, will it help the boys? The representative says that he hopes so, but he can't guarantee anything. That hope is seemingly all the farmers need, however, and they give the government their blessing. And call me sentimental, but such a large sacrifice for the sake of young men they had never met by people reliant on the land that was about to be wrecked leveled me. Next up, we have Cage on Cage from The Unbearable Weight of Massive Talent. I described Nicolas Cage playing Nicolas Cage in a movie about Nicolas Cage as a meta turducken of an idea something that basically only works thanks in part to Cage's unique persona on and off-screen, and the fact that he's in on the joke. It also means you can basically break that meta-premise by having Nicolas Cage talk to Nicolas Cage. In a series of moments where Cage talks to the inner devil on his shoulder, we get to see what the famed actor is apparently at war with, his id and ego that can drive him to do stupid, reckless things complete with a leather jacket. And it is laugh-out-loud hilarious as Cage argues with himself about his best courses of action and how he should probably calm down, while a version of him wearing his wild-at-heart outfit tells him, fuck that, you're Nick Cage. Real or not, it's hilarious to imagine that this is the battle Cage is constantly waging in his own mind. Next up, we have Fuck You from She Said. The majority of She Said is a straightforward retelling of how Jody Cantor and Megan Twoe researched their exposé on the decades of sexual assault allegations by Harvey Weinstein. This includes heartbreaking sit-downs with abused women, recalling how Weinstein abused them and lorded his wealth and power over them to keep them quiet and kill their careers. We also see the emotional toll that this has taken on the reporters as they worry about their young girls and all of the women who have yet to come forward. And of course, there's anger, completely justified, simmering anger at Weinstein, his defenders, and how men like him behave. In short, everyone needs a release or a reason to let it out. So when a man who offers to buy both women a drink won't take no for an answer at the bar as Jody and Megan discuss their story, Megan has hit her breaking point. Taking out all of her anger, seemingly in a single moment, she screamed, Fuck you! Fuck you! Get the fuck out of here! As the asshole man calls her a frigid bitch in front of the whole bar. Seemingly surprised at herself, Megan tries to apologize to Jody, who speaks for the audience when she says, Don't apologize. That was awesome. In a great demonstration of how microaggressions can make someone snap, a great release for the audience, and... We seemingly allow Megan to look liars in the face and call bullshit as the film progresses. While into Nope, the audience has some suspicions of what's going on. There's a UFO circling the Haywood horse ranch, and it appears to capture living things. What happens next is anyone's guess, but OJ Haywood, played by Daniel Kailua, has raised suspicions that the ship may not be a ship, and he's proven right in a spine-chilling sequence. Starting with former child star Steven Yoon's presentation at his western-styled theme park, the UFO snatches up Yoon and his entire audience in a whirlwind. Only now the audience is shown what the ship actually is and does. As it hovers over the Haywood's house, the ship begins to eat its captured prey, seemingly by squeezing them into pulp. The shift between the claustrophobic reality inside the UFO and outside to see how both big and horrifying it is, as it literally rains blood on the Haywood's house, is pure nightmare fuel, while also conveying OJ's assumption as clear as day to be correct. The UFO isn't a ship. The UFO itself is alive. And finally, we have the third act from Glass Onion. The third act in A Good Murder Mystery is incredibly satisfying when done right. All of the pieces fall into place, we get plenty of little reveals about how or why people did or said stuff they said earlier, and there's a good chance that a twist is around the corner. That's hard to do when the audience isn't looking for it. But presumably the audience for Glass Onion has been looking for a twist the entire time. Instead, Glass Onion decides to trigger a cascading series of twists that contextualize and recontextualize what already happened in a sequence so satisfying, silly, and emotional that you'd be forgiven for feeling out of breath before Miles Braun's compound goes up in smoke. What the audience quickly finds out is that the real murder that Blanc is here to solve is that of Cassandra, Andy Brand, and that the woman who's been attending this murder mystery party going by Andy is actually her twin sister, Helen, who also isn't dead. The killer is revealed in hilarious fashion. Daniel Craig says the phrase shitballs. And just when it looks like all hope is lost, Blanc gives Helen the means to take her revenge and get justice. Burning down a billionaire's house has rarely been this much fun. This has been Scott's off indulgent Movie Podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join our Facebook group, Scott's Off indulgent Movie World, for the latest reviews, discussions, and more. See you next time, everybody, and stay safe.